Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. It has been nearly 200 years since Dr. Jean-Marc Pittard described the first person with what would eventually be called Tourette's syndrome. In Paris, France, 1825, he wrote a paper about a seven-year-old girl with involuntary movements and sounds, and 60 years later, that same patient was part of a series of patients described by Dr. Georges-Gilles de la Tourette, also in Paris, with a similar set of features, leading to his name being attached to a syndrome of pediatric onset, involuntary, highly stereotyped movements and sounds called tics that can, but don't always, persist into adulthood. Because the movements and sounds appear to be impulsive, uncontrollable behaviors, for decades the condition was widely considered to be behavioral, not neurological. But as we've discussed on this podcast in multiple prior episodes, that distinction between behavioral neurological or neurobiological is really a false distinction because all behavior comes from the brain. In the late 1960s, doctors Arthur and Elaine Shapiro described that a medication called haloperidol, which blocks a subset of dopamine receptors in the brain, could treat tics. And that discovery catalyzed a paradigm shift for how the medical field thought and thinks about Tourette syndrome and ushered in a new era for approaches to treating what for some can be a very disruptive and disabling condition. Tourette syndrome was once regarded as quite rare. When I was a first year medical student in 1986, we learned that its prevalence was about one in 10,000. But over time and with increasing recognition, we now understand it to occur in around one to 3% of school age children and adolescents with around 20% of children experiencing ticking at some point in childhood. And over the past 30 years in particular, we've learned a great deal about Tourette syndrome along with related conditions, its neurobiology, the role for genetics, approaches to treatment, and more. So today, I'm very excited to be joined by four of my exceptional colleagues from Kennedy Krieger and Johns Hopkins Medicine, who are among the leading clinical and scientific experts in the field and are part of our Tourette Syndrome Center of Excellence. They are Dr. Harvey Singer, a pediatric neurologist, and he's an emeritus professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Marco Grados, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, is the co-director of our Center of Excellence. He's also a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Joseph McGuire, a pediatric psychologist with expertise in Tourette syndrome and related disorders, is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins. And Dr. Shannon Dean, a pediatric neurologist in Kennedy Krieger's Department of Neurology and Neurogenetics, with expertise in movement disorders and experimental therapeutics, is an assistant professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins. I should also say that the Center of Excellence designation comes from the Tourette Association of America. And for full disclosure, I serve on that organization's scientific advisory board. So, Harvey, let's let's start with you. You know, I mentioned <laughs> in the introduction that Tourette syndrome is a pediatric onset neuropsychiatric disorder characterized by tics, which are a particular kind of involuntary movement and or sound. Let's dive a bit deeper. What is a tic? What is Tourette syndrome? How common is it? And when does it start? In terms of the definition. 
Ticks are quick, rapid, sudden, repetitive, involuntary movements or sounds. So, for example, a movement example would be repetitive blinking, facial grimacing, head jerking, shoulder movements. You can also have more complicated things, putting together a variety of these simple movements, also spinning, hopping, holding in a position. In contrast, vocalizations, simple ones, grunts, barks, hoots, hollers, moans, groans, throat clearing is very common. And more complex things involve the use of words, so repeating words, your own words, other people's words, and we'll talk more about foul language later. So when does it begin? So typically the age range is approximately three to eight years we expect ticks to begin. Usually they occur before approximately age 12, okay? In terms of what the definition of Tourette syndrome is, I mean, basically, formally, it requires the presence of multiple motor and at least one phonic vocal tick for more than a year. And that's the criteria. It's approximately 1% of kids, although in all fairness, investigators have thought that there may be an additional 1% who have never been diagnosed, okay? So we're talking about a relatively common phenomenon. So Marco, Tourette syndrome is commonly accompanied by other conditions, such as ADHD or obsessive compulsive disorder, Can you elaborate on the kinds of co-occurring conditions or comorbidities seen with Tourette? Let's spell out a more complete list and how often they occur. One way to look at Tourette's syndrome is a picture of an iceberg, where we have the motor tics and the vocal tics at the top, but underneath lies much more. The two conditions that are most commonly associated with Tourette syndrome are OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. In fact, these conditions tend to run in families if you have a patient with Tourette's. OCD is the occurrence of obsessions, which are intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, urges, and compulsions, which are ritualistic behaviors. About a third of patients with Tourette's will have full-blown OCD, while most patients with Tourette's will have some features of OCD, especially touching, tapping, compulsions, and also aggressive intrusive thoughts tinged with anxiety. So anxiety is also a very common occurrence in patients with Tourette syndrome. As for ADHD, up to 70% of patients with Tourette syndrome will have some form of ADHD, full-blown ADHD, many cases. That's characterized by hyperactivity, impulsivity, problems organizing, inattentiveness, and all these symptoms often can cause more disruption in the patient's family and patient than Tourette's and tics themselves. So very important to look out for these conditions and diagnose them and provide specific treatment. Shannon, Tourette is a specific kind of tic disorder. There are others. How does it differ from those other tic disorders and to what extent do those distinctions matter from a clinical perspective? 
There's four tick disorders that we think about, and the place where the distinction really matters is between what we call provisional tick disorders and the various kinds of chronic tick disorders. So the distinction between the provisional tick disorders and the chronic tick disorders is based on time. As we've already alluded to, Brad, ticks are actually pretty common in young kids in those sort of preschool to early grade school years. Up to 20% of kids will briefly have ticks sometime during those years. And for many of those kids, the ticks will last a few weeks, maybe a few months. They may not even be strong enough that anybody notices them and then they'll go away on their own. And so we don't wanna label something that is harmless that we see in 20% of otherwise healthy kids who are doing well as a disorder. So if you've only had your ticks briefly, we call that a provisional tick disorder because we don't really wanna say that those 20% of kids whose ticks are gonna go away have a disorder at all. If, however, your ticks have come and gone and come and gone for a longer time and our arbitrary cutoff is a year, then you have some form of chronic tick disorder. If you have only ever had what we call motor ticks, so ticks that are primarily movements, your shrugs, your blinks, et cetera, then you have a chronic motor tick disorder. If you have only ever had ticks that are some kind of sound, so not just words, but sniffs and snorts and coughs and things like that, then you have a chronic vocal tick disorder. Um, and if you have both, then you meet criteria for Tourette syndrome. Now, we used to consider Tourette's syndrome to be more severe um, than a chronic motor tic disorder or a chronic vocal tic disorder, but recently people have really started to question that. It's certainly true that if you have more tics in general, unsurprisingly, your tic disorder tends to be worse, but it doesn't seem like the type of tics is where uh, it really makes sense clinically to draw that line because there are kids that only have a few tics and only have relatively mild tics, but one of their tics happens to be a sniff and another one happens to be a blink. That child technically meets criteria for Tourette syndrome, but they're not more severe than another kid with mild tics who happens to only have motor tics. So those are the distinctions we use right now but it's possible the next time the guidelines are revised, some of the differences between the chronic tick disorders are going to possibly go away. So Shannon, sticking with you, and we, we've been talking a bit about the natural history of Tourette syndrome and tick disorders in general. Let's dive in a little bit deeper there. And also, can you describe when a child comes to you and has new onset ticking, what's the conversation like with the family about what they can expect? Usually what I do is I first try to establish how long these ticks have been happening. And I try to really drill down because the first time a tick was significant enough that the family paid attention to it may not be the first time they really had a tick. So I'll ask them before this, in retrospect, were there periods when your kid had a lot of funny blinking or had mystery sniffing that was thought to be allergies, but you could never find the allergen, that kind of thing. Assuming that the ticks truly have been occurring for less than a year, I explain that there's a very good chance that these ticks are going to go away at some point and that there's really no need for further concern. But I also, even in those kids, talk a little bit about what chronic tick disorders look like because some small percentage of those kids are going to continue to have 
ticks for longer term, maybe 10% of the kids that have a provisional tick disorder. For those kids, particularly if I already know that they've had ticks for more than a year, I'll explain that ticks tend to come and go, that they are benign and are only as much of a problem as there are a problem. In other words, if the tick bothers the child, that might be a reason for intervention. But if the tick isn't particularly causing the child any harm, then we may not need to do anything. And I also talk about the natural history. Um, so what we expect, as, as Harvey already mentioned, is that kids are going to start to have their ticks somewhere in those preschool, early grade school years. We expect that their ticks may increase in sort of the run up to middle school, somewhere between nine and 11 or 12. A lot of kids have a peak in their tick activity. Um, so I do prepare uh, families for that possibilities, but I also tell them that the good news is, is that for up to 80% of kids, their ticks are going to improve later, somewhere in the teens, maybe even in the early 20s. And so the ticks as they are at 9 to 11 for most kids isn't going to be um, how the ticks are for the rest of their lives. For many people, if this disorder is bothersome enough that there's something we need to do about it, that's only true when they're relatively young. And as they get older, they kind of age out of ticks being frequent enough or significant enough for them to really cause them any issues. Harvey, probably the most famous feature of Tourette syndrome is, is what is generally called uh, copra phenomena, saying foul things or making foul gestures. It seems like every time Tourette is portrayed in popular media, the person has this feature. Can you describe more? What are the copra phenomena? How often do they actually occur? So it might be worth starting with the definition. So actually, copros is Greek for fecal matter excrement. And obviously, when we talk about phenomenon, that's an action. And so coprolalia, lalia means talk, speech. So foul language while you're speaking. So examples would be, and I'm not going to say it here, the F word or other words that you can think of. So obscene words, profanity. And then there's copropraxia, i.e., movements that are foul, if you will, i.e. giving the finger, and I won't demonstrate, Thank okay? You. Thank you. <laughs> but, and so, interesting phenomenon, okay, involving foul gestures, words. It actually occurs statistically in about 10 to 19% only of individuals with Tourette syndrome. And so, although lots of parents or others worry about Copro phenomenon, actually, it's pretty uncommon in individuals with Tourette syndrome. That's right. So, Marco, in, in medicine, we often talk about the idea of a differential diagnosis list. It's a way of making sure that we as, as physicians were thinking of all the possibilities that could explain a condition. What is the differential diagnosis for when a person presents, comes to clinic with ticking? What are you thinking about? The way I would frame um, the differential diagnosis for Tourette syndrome might be in the psychiatric ones and the neurological ones. So for the psychiatric, um, we have a condition called functional neurological disorder. The older term was conversion disorder, where patients present with unusual movements that have started in atypical fashion for Tourette's at later ages. They're very severe, they're very dramatic, 
and we're still working out the treatment. This occurred mostly during the COVID pandemic. Um, another differential that could be considered would be restlessness related to ADHD or another uh, form of anxiety. And these can usually be differentiated from tics, uh, which are described, of course, as stereotypic, repetitive, same all the time, suppressible urges to move. Um, but I've let Dr. Singer speak perhaps to the movement disorders differential. You want to be sure that the individual indeed has tics, that that's the movement disorder that you are seeing and observing. If an individual has tics, then the differential diagnosis has to take into consideration the possibility of other associated medical conditions. So for example, tics have been associated with some infectious problems like encephalitis or Sydney's chorea. There's some association with various medicines, so neuroleptic drugs, cocaine has been reported to induce tick activity. You can also see it post carbon monoxide poisoning. It's also rarely associated with several neurodegenerative disorders, okay? And so the, the bottom line then is to make sure that there's no other issue. So for example, sometimes we'll see it post-stroke or post-trauma cases have been described. So the important thing is here to do a careful exam just to make sure whether there's any other associated neurologic condition. And obviously, as Dr. Grados mentioned, it's important to consider whether this is or is not a functional, i.e. psychogenic movement disorder. So, Harvey, sticking with you, uh, and along these lines of, of what you just laid out in terms of the differential diagnosis, how is Tourette diagnosed? Do you need to do brain imaging or laboratory tests? For no, no, so obviously the common question asked by parents. And the bottom line is that, one, this is a diagnosis made by history. What's the history of the tics and the individual observation. So it is very important that you try to observe the movements. And so you may not see them in your office, but get that video. And so nowadays, it's very easy to, for parents to film the movements on their cell phones, okay? And the other part is a careful, comprehensive examination to make sure that there's nothing else going on. If all those fit the diagnosis of, say, Tourette syndrome or one of the other tic disorders, it is usually not necessary to do any additional further workup, okay? But rather to explain to the patient and the family exactly what is going on. I just want to underscore the importance of capturing any kind of movement or behavior where a parent is unsure of what's going on capture it on video. It is so much more uh, effective for the evaluating clinician to have a look for themselves rather than to hear a description of it. We agree because, and sometimes when you, the parents describing you, you know how you get a visual image in your mind. And occasionally when you get to see that video, it was not what you were thinking. 
And so again, as we teach medical students and other physicians, get that video. Exactly. So Joe, I'm gonna direct this one to you as, as the psychologist on this panel of experts. You know, in multiple episodes of, of this podcast, we've talked about the idea of, of a neuropsychiatry and the recognition that neurological and psychiatric conditions are brain-based. With that in mind, if you will, let's consider whether Tourette syndrome is neurological, psychiatric, psychological, and do these kinds of distinctions really matter? Uh, I mean, I think it's really all of the above, right? You know, while tics are neurological in nature, you know, we know that there are internal and external factors, you know, by both psychiatric and psychological that can really influence the expression of tics. So, so while, you know, it may be, you know, innate in the brain, also we know there's different modifiable factors that we can do that influence tic expression. Uh, in terms of does it really matter, um, you know, I think one of the strengths uh, of, you know, what we do here at the Kennedy Krieger Institute is, you know, we have an interdisciplinary team where we're bringing everybody to the table to kind of share their expertise and perspectives on this condition. And what we're able to do is put together comprehensive treatment plans. And I think that's the important part is really addressing everything when thinking about that patient with Tourette syndrome. Let's shift our focus to thinking about uh, treatment approaches for Tourette syndrome. There's good evidence uh, for both pharmacotherapy or treatment with medications and for behavioral therapy. Uh, Shannon, can you talk a bit about the medication approaches? And then I'll ask Joe to talk about behavioral therapy. In terms of medication approaches, Again, and I already mentioned this briefly before, Brad, the first thing you need to ask is, do these ticks need to be treated at all? You really want to make sure that this tick is in some way causing harm to the child that is worse than risking any potential side effects. That could mean that the ticks hurt. It could mean that they're embarrassing and the child is getting teased or they're embarrassed enough about them that they don't want to go and spend time with their friends. Or it could mean that they're disruptive in some way in the classroom, at part-time jobs, things like that. Assuming that they are severe enough that they do warrant treatment, usually people think about medications in terms of your first-tier medications, which are generally milder and have fewer side effects, and then your second tier of medications for folks who have tried these other things uh, and still are really bothered by their tics and haven't responded to what we've tried before. The most commonly uh, used medications are in that first tier are things like guanfacine and clonidine. So parents may know this as Intuniv, for example. These are medications that we also use actually as add-on medications for some of the comorbidities of ticks. Uh, it's an add-on medication for ADHD. It's an add-on medication for anxiety, although it doesn't tend to be strong enough as a solo agent for either of those conditions. But they also do seem to suppress ticks pretty well. They're pretty well tolerated. The big side effect that we have to worry about is sleepiness, but if we go slowly, usually that's manageable. And clonidine is similar, but tends to cause even more sleepiness. So a lot of pre people prefer guanfacine for that reason, unless the ticks are mild enough that they only barely need treatment and, you know, the kid is having trouble sleeping anyway, that might be a reason to pick clonidine. The other uh, tier one medication that is used sometimes is topiramate. It seems to work about as well as guanfacine and clonidine, but it doesn't help with any of the common comorbidities. It does help for migraines. So if kids have migraines and they don't have anxiety and they don't have ADHD, it can be a reasonable first choice. 
in your typical kid, usually you're going to get more bang for your buck with those other agents. If those things fail, then we start to use what we call neuroleptics or antipsychotics. So these are medicines like Risperdal, Abilify, even Haldol. These medications do have more potential side effects. That includes metabolic side effects. That includes liver irritation or kidney irritation. Um, and that even includes things like other movement disorders being caused by these medications or cognitive changes or things like that. And so the ticks usually need to be pretty severe before we're really going to those medications. And we need to have tried other approaches and found that they weren't successful. Joe, you want to talk about... Uh behavioral approaches. The American Academy of Neurology, American Academy of Child Psychiatry, and pretty much every practice parameter guideline suggests that behavior therapy, you know, when intervention is needed, is the first-line treatment for, for ticks. Uh, and behavior therapy is a pretty broad term that we talk about. And it can either be habit reversal training or uh, the comprehensive behavioral intervention for ticks. Uh, in terms of habit reversal training, um, what it does is it teaches patients and families first a little bit to acknowledge that ticks are neurological in nature, but we can do things that influence the expression of ticks. And, and what I mean by that is we know premonitory urges that were talked about a little bit earlier, um, you know, tend to be related to the expression of ticks. So uh, the, the best example um, I can give is from a six-year-old who I saw a few years back, and he said every time he felt an itchy in his throat, he did a fluffy, which was his throat-clearing tick, and it took the itchy away. And I think that really highlights how the relationship between premonitory urges and ticks. So in habit reversal training, we say, hey, there's a relationship between premonitory urges and ticks, and we start to build awareness around the tick and trying to kind of figure out when it happens, uh, and then also think a little bit about when, when that premonitory urge starts to happen. And once we have greater awareness, we start to implement competing responses. And competing responses are just behavioral strategies that we can use to inhibit the expression of the tick. And over time, what happens is we start to kind of discontinue that relationship between having that premonitory urge and that expression of the tick. And the, and the tick starts to go away. And, and many patients also report that premonitory urges go away. The difference between CBIT and habit reversal training is CBIT says, well, well that's great that you understand these premonitory urges, but there's also things like going to school that makes ticks worse, you know, stressful situations that makes ticks worse. So let's put together some strategies to deal with those factors outside the body, these, these external environmental factors, uh, and come up with a, a kind of strategy or interventions to address them. So for example, if I have a lot of ticks when I'm doing homework, that might be a great time to actually practice competing responses uh, so that I'm able to better get control over those ticks during that setting. That doesn't mean that I stop doing homework, uh, but I kind of work my way to being able to get through it by empowering the child to use competing responses during that time. And last but not least, a lot of behavior therapy is contingent upon practice. So what I often tell patients and families is the more you practice, the better you get. So if you're practicing, you're going to experience some of those benefits. Harry, do you want to comment? Yeah, on so just two quick comments. So one is uh, Marco mentioned that individuals with Tourette syndrome often have other problems. So it is essential that the examining physician help to determine what's the biggest problem, okay? Because in many individuals, again, it is not the tick. You have to identify because the treatments are different. Treatment for, say, anxiety is different from that from Tourette. So again, you have to get the proper diagnoses 
and know what the treatment is for. Yeah, so the, the tick may have been the thing that brought the child to medical attention, but once in the room, you learn that it's really anxiety or OCD that's the driver, and so that has to be prioritized. Absolutely. Another point is that parents go online and read about what's known as sort of complementary and alternative medications, i.e., uh, the use of vitamins, so B6, B12, uh, minerals, magnesium, uh, omega fatty acids. And I'm not saying that these are harmful for the individual, except that there is no good scientific evidence to support their use in Tourette syndrome. Whereas there's actually a fair amount of, of good clinical trial evidence supporting the medications that, that we've been talking about and supporting the, the behavioral interventions that Joe just mentioned, that CBIT, that has stood up to rigorous clinical trials. I should say that Joe was part of that, uh, the, the coming to fruition of that evidence-based intervention over the past 15, 20 years. Joe, so going back to you, let's talk about age and when is an okay time to start implementing? Is, are, can you be too young for CBIT, for example? Uh, that's a great question and, and one that comes up a lot. Um, so right now in those clinical trials that you, you referenced, patients were as young as eight and as old as 69. So really behavior therapy works, you know, across the lifespan. Uh, there are some, you know, and parents will say, well, well, can we start treating as early as six? And what we've done is we've come up with some adaptations to CBIT, which are really parent focused or parent led. So teaching parents how to implement habit reversal training and other behavioral therapy skills for those six to eight-year-olds. So it's not the exact same type of treatment that you might kind of do if you're, you know, working directly with a child and, and a parent together, but there's still a lot of these same skills. Um, so, so you're never too early. Uh, that being said, it comes down to uh, what did one patient say? Well, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, which I always kind of thought was funny. Uh, but, but what they meant by that is, you know, this is a lot of hard work. We're dedicating a lot of time and energy. Are the ticks bothersome enough that it's worth that time and that energy? And in some cases, the answer is yes, because they're interfering with schoolwork, they're causing problems at home, or, or, or making difficult situations with friends and family. Uh, if they're not getting in the way, it may not necessarily be worth that amount of time that we're dedicating them uh, to fixing them at this moment in time. Harvey, we mentioned a couple times now the high comorbidity of ADHD and Tourette syndrome, and, and typically ADHD starts earlier than Tourette. Uh, a very commonly expressed concern is that stimulant medication like methylphenidate, often used to treat ADHD, is the culprit for bringing on the ticking. Is that concern a real one? What do we know about the relationship between stimulant medication and ticking? Oh, so great question that we often hear from parents about. So again, approximately in the 1990s, there was a lot of concern raised by physicians, parents, so forth, that, as you point out, stimulants might make ticks worse. And so a variety of studies were actually performed. And so the data, the scientific data, does not support that the use of stimulant medications makes ticks worse. And so if somebody has attention deficit and they need to be treated, if their physician elects to use a stimulant medication, we have no objections, again, because we have no proof that it is the stimulant 
that might make the ticks worse. Okay, remember ticks fluctuate, and so if I'm drinking water, it doesn't mean the water made my ticks worse. Exactly. So, Joe, let's let's shift to the the life outside of the clinical space. Let's let's go to school. How does having Tourette syndrome impact a child's education? There's a few different ways that having Tourette syndrome can impact a child's education. And we talked a little bit about co-occurring conditions and other co-occurring challenges. One of those is a lot of young people with tics and Tourette syndrome will have learning disabilities or unique learning challenges. So really first assessing for those whenever doing an evaluation. So this way we're able to separate out what's uh, attributed to tics versus what might be attributed to something else going on. And that's always the case with, with Tourette syndrome. In terms of tics specifically, if you think about vocal tics, they can really disrupt a, a lot of classroom activities, chirping, barking, and, and somebody may have to actually leave the classroom so that they can kind of manage those, t- those tics in return. In terms of motor tics, if I have a big arm jerk or something else is going on, it's going to make doing schoolwork really hard. It's going to make sitting in that seat really hard. Now, does that mean we don't have children, you know, participate in school-related activities? No, we want people to be in school. We want people learning. But what it does mean is we want to think about kind of a stepwise accommodations to empower kids to manage these situations and overcome them. So, for example, if somebody has some really bad arm tics, we may want to kind of reduce the level of schoolwork while teaching them how to do uh, behavior therapy strategies and skills so that as we are... Um, reducing the amount of kind of schoolwork, they're learning how to practice and manage those tics and over time able to perform just like everybody else while using those skills uh, in those classroom settings. Shannon, what, what kinds of feedback or guidance do you think we should provide to educators, to coaches, to other adults who interact with a child with Tourette syndrome to know best how to support that child in their endeavors, not just in school, but really in all aspects of, of their lives? I think the big thing that we need to remind um, educators and and other people that work with kids about is that these kids aren't doing uh, the movements or the sounds on purpose. If you think of it as sort of like um, being really itchy, you, you can technically stop scratching an itch temporarily, but it's really uncomfortable to do so. And so the kids aren't having their tics, um, because they want to, they're having their ticks because they're not comfortable uh, if they don't let those ticks out. So there's no point in punishing kids for the ticks. If anything, you're going to make them worse because it's just sort of like if someone tells you, don't scratch that itch, now you're itchier than you were uh, before they said anything. Now, sometimes the tick is truly dis- disruptive and it can't be ignored. Um, and so in those cases, it's reasonable to brainstorm with the parents and sometimes with the child directly on ways to modify the tick and the expression of that tick um, so that it isn't causing a problem anymore. So, for example, if a kid has a spitting tick, maybe they can spit in a tissue instead of on the floor. If they have a really loud tick, maybe you can give that child permission to leave the practice, to leave the cr- classroom briefly um, and let that tick uh, out Um, The other thing I do think it's worth uh, mentioning for people that are working with kids is one of the things that Harvey mentioned. The ticks are sometimes not the problem. So if you're noticing a child has ticks, of course you should be letting the parents know about that. But one of the other things that you may want to be thinking about is, does this kid seem 
really anxious? Does this kid seem like they're really struggling, even though they're trying um, with organization, with sitting still, things like that? Uh, and you may want to let the parents know about that at the same time that you mentioned the tics. Harvey, what do we know about the neurobiological basis for tics? So if you just go back historically, so initially, if you go back to Tourette's writing and his colleague was Sigmund Freud, they thought that this was a psychiatric disorder. And then beginning maybe 1950s, early 60s, the, everything shifted to become more biologic. So once you say that then, as a neurologist, we would then say, well, where in the brain is this coming from? And so is it sort of the upper layer, the cortex, deeper structures, what we call the basal ganglia? And so people went searching for these sites. And suffice it to say, it's not clear what the primary site is, which led to another hypothesis that this is, there are pathways that go from one part of the brain to another part. And so I like the analogy of a racetrack. So if people can envision a racetrack, so you start at the start, which could be the cortex that goes around the basal ganglia, thalamus, and back to the cortex. And so the bottom line is that if you disrupt that message going around that circuit in any location, you might get a tick. And then the question is, well, what's the mechanism? People would like to know, well, well, look, if I'm a brain cell and I want to talk to my neighboring brain cell, I don't touch them. I send out a process that gets close and I release a chemical that transmits the message, something that's called a neurotransmitter, like dopamine, serotonin, glutamate, GABA. And so which one of those is the problem? And then another really interesting issue is what triggers the tick? Because the individual is not having ticks all the time. So what triggers it? So we have lots of fascinating questions that many of which still remain sort of the answer is vague. Again, there is no doubt that this is biologic and coming from the brain, but the precise pathway mechanism is still unclear, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. So. Uh, Joe, let's let's end with a, a forward-looking question. What kind of research is taking place, and and where can people go to learn more about how to participate, for example, in research that might be taking place at Kennedy Krieger Institute? Uh, so, so building off of what Harvey said, you know, there's a lot that we don't know, and I think that's the importance of research. We we know a fair amount, but I think we're we're far from having all the answers. As as one of uh, my postdocs is a fan of saying, we don't know what we don't know, but at least we're going to try to figure it out. Uh, so right now, there's a couple different projects going on where we're trying to both improve our ways of, of understanding the assessment as well as treatment and starting to dig at those kind of mechanisms that, that Harvey was talking about a little bit earlier on. So we have a few projects through our center of excellence. One is seeing if we can actually use you know cameras on your smartphone to be able to detect ticks in real time. So can we actually use all of these machine learning algorithms to separate out the difference between a normal movement and a tick-like movement? So that's just kind of one example. We're also exploring, you know, those mechanisms underlying behavior therapy. So we have a separate project going on for that, uh, as well as even looking at a mindfulness-based approach 
to Tourette syndrome. So we talked a little bit about, you know, in that, um, you know, in CBIT and in pharmacotherapy, about half of people get better, which is great, which is wonderful, but that still means half of people are not getting better. So we're starting to look at whether or not mindfulness-based practices can actually move the needle in terms of reducing tick severity and improve quality of life. And this directly comes from working with our patients and families who've shared that some of these strategies have been particularly helpful for them. In terms of where to go, the Tourette Center of Excellence, a website through the Kennedy Krieger Institute and Johns Hopkins Medicine is a great place, as well as um, looking on the Tourette Association of America, their website for research opportunities to participate. And we will... Uh, add those links to the page for this episode of the of the podcast uh, so that people can directly click on those. Thank you to each of our guests, Dr. Singer, Gredos, McGuire, and Dean. We hope that you, our listeners, have found this information about Tourette syndrome informative and helpful. Please check out our entire library of topics on your child's brain at wypr.org, kennedykrieger.org, wypr.org slash studios, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain. <laughs>